In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the 20th Sunday after Pentecost, and we're in chapter 22 of St. Matthew's Gospel. You remember that Jesus has at this point entered into the holy city of Jerusalem. He's cleansed the temple, and then the chief priests and the elders confront him and ask him, by what authority do you do this? Jesus' response about this question uh, to his authority is answered with three building parables, one that builds upon another. He starts with the parable of the two sons and emphasizes obedience to God. He goes on to the tenants and talks about the uh, necessity of those in authority to follow again the obedience of God. And then finally, the parable of the wedding uh, banquet and the wedding garments and how uh, not all, only are we called to uh, bear that authority and to encourage obedience in one another, uh, but we're to take up that uh, likeness of God and his righteousness. The Pharisees, after that third parable, recognize that Jesus is speaking about them and that he's telling them that uh, you are not holy because of your office, you're not holy because of your outer looks, uh, but that you're called to be righteous and accountable to God. And at this point, they plot to kill him and to entrap him. And so then they send uh, some of their servants. You see that they don't go themselves to do this. They send others to try to trap Jesus. And along with uh, their servants, they send the Herodians. You remember that the Herodians are part of this uh, political structure that the Romans had put into place uh, some many years before in order to kind of administer the region of Judea. The Jews had not been uh, managing themselves for over 600 years at this point. They'd been taken over by the, uh, by the Babylonians and then of course the Persians uh, take over for them. The Greeks come through and at the end of the Greeks we have the Romans who are there and the Romans allow uh, Herod's uh, great-grandfather to come in. Uh, he was uh, an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. And uh, he's allowed to run this kingdom, if you will, under the Roman authorities. And so now the Jews have two substructures over them uh, that are imposing uh, an order that uh, they don't like and that they're trying to find a way to get themselves out from under. This, of course, is exposing their, uh, their traitorousness and their uh, rebellion against the Romans and against uh, Herod and his people uh, that they're trying to trap Jesus in this way. And indeed, their insistence on getting rid of Caesar is eventually what destroys Judea. They uh, continue to have these uprisings and rebellions so that only 40 years after the time of Christ, the Romans level Jerusalem. And then only a hundred years later, under the Bar Kokhba revolt, uh, they decimate Judea. They take that name off of the maps. They start calling it Palestine and refuse to allow Jews even to live in the Holy Land. So you can see the seeds of this rebellion and revolt in this question that they're asking Jesus and that they're trying to trap him under. Uh, should we pay taxes or not? The simple question uh, or answer to that is, yes, of course we're supposed to pay taxes. Uh, this is Caesar's uh, money. This is his money that he printed. Uh, they're using it for their purposes, and so they're going to have to pay the taxes. There is nothing in Scripture that you can find anywhere that would give us any kind of permission not to pay our taxes. We can be holy, we can be righteous people, and pay our taxes at the same time. We can be holy and righteous people under a government that is not holy and righteous. And indeed, our 
call is to be holy and righteous, no matter what it is that the government does. Even if they try to tell us to do something that is unholy and unrighteous, we stand firm, and if we suffer the consequence for that, if we're jailed or imprisoned because of that, uh, then that's what we'll do. Indeed, this is the only way the church has really grown substantially is when we've been persecuted by governments and we've stood firm for uh, what is true. This is when the church really begins to explode when we allow ourselves to be put into prison uh, by unjust governments. So if we really want to see church growth and evangelism, that's what we're going to be waiting for, I think, uh, in in the, the church today. So Jesus uh, doesn't answer the question that they want him to answer. He doesn't fall into this trap of uh, having the crowds be upset with him by saying, yes, pay your taxes. And he doesn't fall into the trap of them by saying, no, don't. So that then he's uh, finding himself uh, as opposed to Caesar. He simply says, whose likeness do you see? And the, the answer uh, here goes much deeper when we think about money and, and the use of money in our lives and the importance of money in our lives. Money is mentioned so many times in Scripture. It's one of those themes that comes up again and again. And this idea of the tithe as a way of organizing and indeed sanctifying our money is one that we find all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, and so uh, Malachi here is telling us that in order for us to worship the Lord, uh, we're going to have to tithe. We're going to have to give to his storehouse uh, because the, the temple worship is what's required for the people to organize themselves and to uh, be uh, in, in that way obedient to the Lord. He brings up this imagery of the fruits and of the, the harvest and of the storehouse. And again, we've seen Jesus's parables use these same uh, analogies and parables of the storehouse. And of course, this is the fruit of our lives. It's the fruit of the work uh, according to God. And if we're going to be giving to the Lord, we have to give uh, money to him. We have to sanctify the first fruits of what we have. Uh, as we saw in the story of Cain and Abel. The very first fruits of what we're given have to be sanctified to the Lord. When we do that, everything else is sanctified. Now, there's no uh, miraculous kind of thing that then means that we've got a good budget after this or that we're going to be good stewards with the rest of our money. Sometimes people teach, oh, if you tithe, then you're going to become rich. That's ridiculous. Uh, You still have to spend the other 90% according to God's will. This is a sanctifying act. It's the same thing that we do when we wake up first thing in the morning and we dedicate our lives to prayer and to study of God. We're giving him the first of our time. It's the same thing when we've come here on Sunday morning. We're giving the first of our week. So we're always giving the first of our time, our talent, and our treasure to the Lord. And then once that's sanctified, we're organizing all of our resources according to God's will. My very first preaching assignment, my very first church, uh, Christ Church in Lemoore, California, uh, the founder of that church, he was then in his 80s, uh, Corby Dale, came in. He had started the church as a lay reader, and he led morning prayer for years before they were able to hire a priest, uh, came in to make sure what kind of a preacher I was going to be, and he said, are you going to preach the tithe? Uh, Clearly, if I had said no, he was going to be calling the bishop and saying, you need to remove him, and he told me as much. He said, okay, well, I'm not going to call the bishop today. We'll see what happens tomorrow, right? And, uh, and then Corby said, you know, the tithe is so important. He said, uh, if you show me a man's checkbook, I'll show you a window into his soul. And I said, I, I think you're probably right about that. You know, uh, the way that we spend our money shows our priorities, doesn't it? It shows us where it is that we're putting uh, our emphasis and where it is indeed that we're putting our heart. 
So we have to be organized, we have to be disciplined in order to have the tithe. And then we're, what we're doing is we're building this storehouse of righteousness, this school, this hospital, this family, wherein we can do something that, that nobody else can do. The church can do what no other institution can do, and that's to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, uh, to uh, clarify the will of the Father, and to encourage one another to follow that will and obedience. There is no other institution in the world that will do that. And so this is the storehouse of righteousness where we learn the ways of God so that we can go into the world to proclaim his name. And indeed, this is what St. Paul is giving thanks for in his letter to the Thessalonians. He's saying, I give thanks for the church that was founded because you did what? He said, you turned from idols to the Lord. That's the effect of the church. He says, you've turned to God from idols to serve the living God. So that's what happens in the church. That's our purpose here, right? Is to take the lost, the sick, as we've talked about in our uh, purpose statement, the, those who have been driven away, right? Those who are serving idols to bring them back into the house of God, into that storehouse in order to uh, teach those good things. And once, what do we do once we're there, once we've turned away from idols? We become imitators of God and of one another. We imitate the saints. So we're looking at the lives of one another. We're looking at the lives of the saints. And we're saying, how can I imitate what it is that they've done? Uh, how can I imitate uh, St. Augustine? How can I imitate St. Monica? What is it that they did that allowed them to dedicate their lives to the Lord? And so we become imitators of those who are practicing righteousness. And then, of course, we have to do it with steadfastness, with consistency. We can't be imitators occasionally. It has to be this daily discipline, doesn't it, of imitation of the Lord and of his righteous. And we know that this isn't the kind of faith where we say, oh, I got my golden ticket, I got my baptism, I got my salvation, and so now I can just put it in my back pocket and wait until God comes again, wait until death. He's talking about a transformation that happens right here and now. We are, our lives are transformed and you can see that St. Paul points out these Christian virtues that are sometimes thought of as things that are you know, inside of our heads or inside of our hearts. And he talks about how they're turned and they're used for real work in the world. He takes uh, these three Christian virtues, uh, faith, hope, and love, right? These are the bedrock foundational Christian virtues. What does that mean? It means that it's always good at all times to have faith. It's always good at all times to have hope. It's always good at all times to practice love. That's what it means to have a virtue. It means that it's always a good thing to practice that. And St. Paul marries the practice with the virtue. You see here in, in his letter to the Thessalonians, this is um, verse 3. He says, your work of faith. Your work of faith. This idea that faith and works are somehow separate or opposed to one another is ridiculousness. And St. Paul shows that, that work and faith are the same thing. They go together. So our work of faith, that means uh, that we see what God is intending, right? That's faith. We see things that are not visible with the naked eye, right? We can see this plan that God has. We can see this intent that the Lord has, even though others can't see it right in front of them. And we work towards that, right? We organize our lives towards that goal, towards that purpose of God. That's faith. I know that this is what the Lord's calling me to do. I know this is what he's calling our church to do. And we work, even though the rest of the world can't see it. To have a labor of love. This is a really important one, right? Because love, for us... It's not puppy love, right? 
It's not this crush. Love is labor. When we labor for those around us, we're showing our love. It means getting up and getting out of bed to help somebody in the bathroom or to clean up a mess. When we'd rather sleep, that's love. To, to do what is needed for those that we love when we'd rather do something for ourselves. That's the labor of love. That's the work that we're called to do. And then he says to be steadfast in hope. What, what is hope? Hope is to, to yearn, to hunger for the things of God. We not only see them in faith, but we want them. We hope for them. We yearn for the things of God. And so we're steadfast in that yearning and that hunger. We're always turning our hearts and our minds towards the purposes of God. And then in that way, when we do that, we never have enough to give. Because again, the standard of giving in the New Testament is everything. The tithe's a minimum. Jesus says to the rich man, give everything that you have to the poor and follow me. The standard of giving is the widow's might. The minimum is the tithe. And it becomes so much more than a minimum when we really desire the things of God and when we're yearning for his kingdom to be proclaimed. When we see that word image, when Jesus points out the image of the coin, the immediate thing that we should be going to, what should be triggered in our minds, is Genesis, where we read, let us make them according to our image. We have been minted in the image of God. We have been made in the image of God. All things belong to him, including us. And while some have taught that that image has been broken in original sin in the Garden of Eden, the fathers of the church say that image has been tarnished. It's been soiled. Sin is that smoky candle that has clouded the image of God, that has tarnished it in our lives so that when people see us, they're not seeing God, they're seeing this tarnishing, this, this dirt that's been put onto us by sin or that we've put on ourselves. And that the practice of faith, hope, and love of that work, of that labor, of that steadfastness is a solvent that removes that dirt so that when the world starts to look at us, they begin to see God and His image that was pressed upon us in creation. May more and more the world see Christ when they see us. May they see His love and His desire to be with them in eternity and forevermore.